Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Naomi Hathaway, a nonprofit consultant and community builder. conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Naomi grew up in North Platte and then Omaha, but has moved multiple times across America and three times internationally with her family, including a few years in New Delhi, India, and in Singapore. Naomi Hathaway is the founder of I Am A Triangle, an online community with thousands of globally located expats. She also owns 8th and Home Real Estate and Relocation, a nationwide referral network matching families on the move with real estate professionals who chase communities and not commissions. Naomi also consults for nonprofits and organizations on inclusive program design, mutual aid, and housing solutions. Naomi is passionate about community building and empowering others to thrive, not just survive, in the places they call home. She ran recently for city council in Omaha, with a bid to represent District 6, the central section of West Omaha. Her next venture will allow her to continue her work in affordable housing, this time on a larger scale that will impact all of Greater Omaha with development, policy and advocacy, and a strong focus on ending homelessness. Naomi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited for this conversation. Your passions and your experiences are so wide-ranging that I feel the need to just anchor myself and maybe anchor the conversation by just asking you to share a little bit about your childhood. What was growing up like for you? You know, my childhood was, um, I'll just out myself with how old I am. I was was born in the mid seventies in North Platte, Nebraska. And, you know, the mid seventies in North Platte was not really a place where my family fit in. Uh, My mom is white. My dad is black. He worked for the Union Pacific Railroad, and he was one of the first formally educated engineers uh, to drive a Union Pacific train. And there's a really great old uh, Omaha World Herald article that talks about how the the Union Pacific engineers used to be sun-kissed and sun-bronzed as you see them, you know, going down the tracks. And and the, the reporter said something like, and now it looks different. Now we see the faces of black men and we see the faces of um, Latino women. And, um, you know, so part of my childhood is grounded in the fact that my parents were both trailblazers. They were both used to doing things early or before it was accepted. Um, add to that, that my parents chose to homeschool us. And that was also at the time, the Nebraska Board of Education did not recognize homeschooling as a legal form of education. So my my early childhood and, and education experience was also before its time. Um, about 10 years later, the Board of Education did um, approve a more formal way that you could apply to be homeschooled. But we lived out in the country. We would get our homeschooling work done quickly and early. I'm the oldest of four. And so often I spent um, our days traipsing through Western Nebraska through our, we had acres that we lived on. Um, And my childhood was filled with joy. I I just remember it being expansive and um, sky is the limit. Uh, My parents ended up getting divorced uh, when I was about 12. And then we found ourselves in Omaha, which was where both of my parents are from. From then there's just this whole, um, still homeschooling. I became a page at the Omaha library system way back when, got to work at two of our wonderful branches, had a child young. I was, I'm a teen, I was a young teen mom. Um, and then I guess that kind of captures us up to early adulthood. North Platte is a reasonable sized town, but it very much feels a part of rural Nebraska, perhaps more so than, than Omaha does. So how was that transition for you from North Platte to Omaha? Well, and, and we actually lived about 20 miles outside of North Platte. So we were very much rural. Uh, we went to town once a week. Uh, we had to bank all of our errands into one trip. Mom would always say, get your stuff together because uh, we're going into town. And I, you know, I loved reading. Um, and so I would always pack a bag um, whenever we'd go into town just to make sure I was covered on my books. And so that was one of the things that I remember noticing as a huge difference coming to Omaha was 
the massive amount of resources, whether it was library or community groups or um, parks, you know, where you could go and meet people. Um, and then for, for a homeschooling family, moving to a larger town um, city was also super helpful because there was actually community um, and watching my mom make that space, that shift from what it was like to homeschool in isolation to what it meant to homeschool inside of community was a huge difference. Um, formatively for me, a lot was starting to shift. I was a young teen. I was the oldest of four, very responsible child, um, started working. Parents were divorced. Mom was, you know, now the sole caregiver, breadwinner, all of those things. Um, and so my mind even started to shift into um, what it was I wanted to do, um, which is why I got a job um, and started becoming a little more independent. I know that you left home at 16, Yep. but you left home to enter the world, as it were. I I'm just wondering, did you think about further education? Were you thinking about further education or were you thinking about starting your life at 16 out there? Yeah. I think I was mostly interested in looking at what a life that I chose could look like. Um, I had felt very boxed into being responsible for the family unit. Um, and so I, I wasn't really concerned about my education, partially, honestly, because being homeschooled, we had gone leaps and bounds beyond what I would have if I was traditionally schooled at the age of 16. So I already had this wealth of knowledge. And so my first priority was supporting myself and proving to myself and, and to those that loved me that I could do things on my own. Um, I did eventually go to Metro Community College and got um, a couple of years of classes under my belt. But at the time, I was also a young single mom, and it just didn't, I didn't have enough hours in the day to be a, a single mom uh, working to, to provide for my son and do classes. So I did not um, graduate with a degree, but did attend a couple of years. You leave home, you, you step into the world just to see how you can craft that life for yourself. But you talked about being a, a single mom quite early comparatively. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about life and this life that you're building at, at that point. We were, we were very involved with church all growing up. Um, it was very much part of our, in fact, our trips to town revolved around Sunday morning church. Um, and, and there was an episode that happened with church in correlation to me becoming pregnant that really became the defining moment of, for me, of everything else that I've sought out in my life with regard to relationships and friendships and community and community care. Um, and at the time, uh, the folks that were in power at the church um, decided that because my sin, and I'm air quoting sin, um, was visible and it was something that they could see they had to address it. And so I was asked to go before the congregation for two different church services. I was 18 years old and was asked to um, ask for forgiveness for my sin. And I won't go into the details of what all happened, um, but I didn't, I refused to. And, and just seeing the, the rift and the chasm that is created when we don't care for each other really just opened up my eyes to what else needed to be the alternative. So everything from then on um, with my son was seeking out community and relationships that would support us and where I could also give back and support. Um, I was very, very, he was, my son was two years old. Um, I applied for homeownership with Habitat for Humanity of Omaha. Uh, and I always tell the joke that the board at the time thought I was too young for the responsibilities of homeownership. And one of the board members who is still involved with Habitat today said, no, I think we should give her a chance and um, was able to um, purchase a home on 39th and Ames, just down the street from Jim's Rib Haven. And that's another kind of catalyzing moment in our lives too, with that stability, again, around community. You wrote somewhere that in those early days when you are forging your own path in the world, that you were one check away from the poverty line, you know, month to month. And that this ability to put some sweat equity into a Habitat for Humanity house and that program, to use your word, was, you know, a catalyst for your life. I'm just wondering what life was like for you at that time when you were describing it as one paycheck away from poverty. It was a hustle. It, um, I was working as a paralegal. 
Um, I was fortunate enough to have been introduced to a group of attorneys um, that were moving offices. And I had no idea what it meant to be a paralegal, but they needed someone to answer phones at the old office while they moved boxes to the new place. And so I had my little one, he was um, breastfeeding and I was able to bring him to the office and I answered phones. One of those lawyers ended up becoming a, um, a judge here. And it's just so interesting to know that they saw in me a possibility. Um, They're like, well, maybe we could just train her to what we know we need. And so I came on, um, didn't get formal education to be a paralegal, but ended up working for some of the biggest known um, attorney names here in Omaha, just by learning on the job. Um, the, the problem was that that didn't pay me enough to have a, a self-sustaining single income household for my child. So I also bartended. Um, and so the hustle became, you know, an eight to five, but also having to leave in the middle to get my child picked up, you know, from school to the daycare. And then I usually worked nights as a bartender, getting a couple of hours of sleep and then doing it all over again. Um, and the fear and the lack of sustainability in that kind of a life is exhausting. You know, if you miss a shift, or if you get sick, or if you can't keep up your car, or if your child gets sick, like all of those very thinly held together pieces of your existence becomes this hustle. Um, and so it was, it was challenging. Um, but I, I also, at the same time, wouldn't have changed it for the world because I think that there's so much benefit that having lived through all of that and given me that lived expertise that now fuels the work I do today. Let's head towards New Delhi. So um, tell me just a little bit about how that opportunity arose and why you and your family committed to it. So the fast forward is that I um, met my now husband. He adopted formally my oldest son, Taryn. Um, we then went on to have two children together. He has been in the, he's a um, former Marine and has always been in the aviation business. At the time, we had hop, skipped, and jumped a little bit, and so we were living at the time outside of Cleveland, Ohio. He came home one day and said, "I've got this really interesting opportunity," and I'm like, "Oh, okay. I'm, you know, let's. I say yes to almost everything. Let's, let's, let's talk about that." And he said, "It's in India," and I, I looked at him and I said, "Okay, I, I think that sounds interesting." And he says okay, let's do it. We joke now because I said yes to India thinking it was something he wanted and needed. He brought India to me because he thought it was something I wanted and needed. And so we were both like in a circle trying to do what was best for the other partner. And, it, and <laughs> in the end, I'm not sure it was right for any of us, but um, so yeah, New Delhi at that time was in the kind of still wild west of being an expat. Um, there was not any support system. Um, there was no relocation assistance. Um, he went on ahead of us. He was there four months before we left. And we landed in New Delhi right before the monsoons hit. So very, very hot. 
um, like 120 degrees, you know, is, is the, the norm through the summer. And three days after me and the kids landed, my husband left for a business trip. And I think back to that time and I'm like, wow, that was yet another opportunity of like, here literally is your life. Make a choice on how you're going to let this unfold. I also say that India is a place that you cannot describe while you live there. You can't make sense of it once you've left. And if you've never been there, don't even try. Like it just, it is, you love it and hate it. It is, it is in a cost to your, all five of your senses all at the same time. And I'm so glad we were there. We were there for three years. When we moved, our children were three, six, and 14. Um, and I, I will tell you a story. We thought that our kids were adjusting really well to the very immense amount of poverty and just the dirt and the heat and the, the everything, the sounds. We thought that they were adjusting really well because they never were bothered by the beggars or the um, things that they were seeing. And then about a month later, our shipment arrived and with the shipment came their booster seats, which meant that they were now sitting about six inches higher and they could both see out of the window. <laughs> they couldn't see out of the window before. So all this time I thought they were such good troopers and were adjusting, they literally weren't seeing the environment around them. Um, and so that was just really telling to me also about what we have as expectations for each other. Um, how well we adapt to things. Um, and if we don't all see the same thing, it's, it's a far cry to expect us all to respond the same way. It sounds as if the experience is almost too rich to be able to paint um, a simple picture. I wonder if there's a moment or an experience that just as I ask this question, top of mind just comes straight out that stands out to you when you think back to that time. It was interesting because people will always say things like, oh my goodness, you've, you've moved so many times, it must be hard to make friends. And it's actually the opposite. If you have ever lived as an expat, uh, most cases anyway, there's a built-in community for you because it's people that have been through what you've just experienced landing in a new country. And so we were open-armed, welcomed into the um, embassy and expat community in New Delhi. The hard shift was knowing that I also wanted to experience as much as I could as a borrowed uh, citizen of, you know, resident of India. And so I was always going pushing past that comfort bubble to experience India in different ways. And um, one of the things that sticks out most to me is that it's very common to have hired help to bring in a driver, a cook, a gardener, a cleaner. And I, I revolted against that so hard. I just thought it was tacky. I thought how terrible that we are this, you know, family that comes in and now we've got to have this household of people. And man, what an experience and a learning lesson of how much better our kids fared with having more adults that cared for them around them, knowing that there was always someone who was right at beck and call to help out with things. Um, that was a beautiful experience in India. And then, I mean, goodness, the photography opportunities and the, the nonprofit opportunities abounded. We also had a really great opportunity. Um, the U.S. ambassador to India, his name was Mr. Romer. His wife, Sally, was really engaged with a uh, Michelle Obama initiative called Make a Difference. She had been in Mumbai and brought it to Delhi. And so I was able to help write curriculum for um, Make a Difference, which was an English language learning program. And so we did that for three years and that was remarkable. How are you a different person because of your time there? Well, there's a lot of things. Um, one of the things people listening to this can't see me, but I am a, I don't know what color brown I am, but <laughs> product of a black dad and a, a white mom, I am uh, brown. I am cappuccino colored. I'm, you know, I, what a lot of people would say I present as white. Um, but it was remarkably palatable in my body and, and in my psyche to be in a country where my skin color was not the minority. Um, and so that was, that, that changed me to be in a, in a, in a setting where my friends, my blonde hair, blue eyed friends were actually the minority. And so that was an interesting shift in my perspective. Um, the other thing that changed me, I, I got really sick with a mosquito borne virus. While I didn't identify it as a disability at the time, I've now come to identify it as a chronic illness and that forever has changed me. I also think that watching what a developing country 
does for its community without resources has given me a heightened expectation of what I want for our local community here in Omaha when we do have those resources. You mentioned this mosquito-borne illness you contracted, and I, I think it's that that took you to Singapore, but you're in Singapore for quite a while too. Yeah, and the, what I contracted was called chikungunya, and it is um, Swahili for stoops over, and it impacts your joints. And so it literally kind of um, compresses the way that your joints move. And it's um, similar-ish to Lyme, if, if anyone's familiar with what Lyme does to your body. It also, for me, um, kind of woke up Epstein-Barr, which is the virus that lays dormant when you have mono. And I had had mono as a teen. Um, and so those two clashed. At the time, Indian medicine was often um, to stop drinking cold liquids and to put on a hat. That was the solution for almost everything. And when they realized that wasn't really going to be an option for, for me to get better, um, they basically said, you need to go somewhere where the air is cleaner and where you have better medical care. And so the kids and I moved to Singapore, but my husband's job um, did not change. It was just that we were trying to look for a different environment for myself. So Todd stayed back in Delhi and the kids and I moved to Singapore and we were there for one year. So not too long. I burned out like a wandering ember I shone bright and my journey was over What I sought when I ran Was back where I began No matter the rain No matter the storm I'm coming home I'm coming home Leave open the gate Don't turn off the light I'm coming home So there's clearly this theme of a life in motion and this theme of a life lived with uh, rich experiences. And so I guess I'm gearing up to the, this idea of community and place. And I want to ask you, what does the word home mean to you? I mean, I think that the cliche answer is that home is where my family is. Um, but I would dial that down even more to be my three children and my husband. Um, my family and my husband's family are either themselves nomadic or they're very used to it. And so we have raised our children in a space where good, bad, or ugly, they don't have a lot of connections to our extended family. And because of that, or in spite of it, I don't know which way you'd wanna say that, we have this network of community that may not be deeply rooted, but it goes far anywhere in the world we could go. And within a couple of connections, we'd have someone to welcome us, help us, what have you. So to me, home is family. And then it's also being able to, to pick up the phone and know that someone's on the other end that will provide support or help or a good conversation. So that leads me then to ask you, what is community? What does community mean? To me, um, community is that space where you can come in. It's, it's very, um, it has a lot of synergy with belonging and being able to bring yourself as you are in that very moment to a space that welcomes that doesn't ask you to be something else. Doesn't hope that you'll change. Doesn't only dwell on who you were before, but just lets you come into that space as you are now. And I think that the underpinning of that is also connected resources. So if the community allows you to come into a space, they also see what you bring to it. And then they also uphold what you might need in that time. When we repatriated and, and moved back to the United States from being in Singapore, we landed in Florida for a while. And I kind of took stock of the community and I promptly put away all of my Bengal jewelry, all of my cool earrings, all of my beautiful clothes that I had accumulated while being overseas. And I put on what everyone else was wearing, leggings, a big baggy sweatshirt and put my hair in a ponytail. And that wasn't community because I was being asked to, or so I thought, change who I was 
to be welcomed in. And so I'm always looking for, uh, and I see it in my kids too, who's on the outskirts, not quite fitting in yet, because that's probably where I'll find community. I want to use that word belonging and borrow that word from you, but in, in this sort of community building context. So what is that work? What is it that you feel you are being called to do? And, and what are you doing that could be framed as community building? I think, um, especially after running for city council this last year, I think that what I've learned about myself is that I, I see very clearly and then I prioritize removing the barriers. So sometimes the barrier might be shame. Someone doesn't think they know enough to join a conversation I mean, if you aren't born and raised in Omaha, you can't answer the question that everyone asks, which is what high school did you go to? And if you can't answer that, it puts you kind of on the other side of the bleachers, which is a super uncomfortable place to be. You know, and so I do this thing and I call it signaling, which I learned from uh, a book called The Power of Onlyness. And signaling is where I might be in conversation with you at the grocery store. And you might say, oh, that's a, I remember that peanut butter from my childhood. And my signal would be, You know, I was homeschooled and we lived all the way out in Western Nebraska. So we didn't have that peanut butter. And all I've done is kept the conversation going, but I gave you a little snippet of what my experience has been that then you might say, oh, my sister homeschools her kids. And then all of a sudden now you're starting to have those touch points. I think that we, especially we were talking before we started recording about adults and how we isolate emotions or don't know how to handle change and I think sometimes we forget how to share our experiences in a way that is vulnerable and true, but for a purpose. Um, During the city council race, I signaled affordable housing as something that we could talk about in West Omaha. And so I gathered some people that were also willing to talk about that, talking about homelessness. You know, all of the work that I do now is built on putting out the bat signal and then seeing who responds. Let me ask for you to talk about your candidacy for city council, because I I think your platform itself and your experience in the campaign as someone campaigning is indicative and illustrative of the work you're doing, the passions that you have, but maybe also, dare I say, some of the challenges that you face in building community. With that context, why did you choose to run and what was that experience of campaigning like? What did you campaign on? So I decided to run shortly after George Floyd was murdered, but not because of that. Um, when I moved back to Omaha in 2017, I, I had this expectation and this like deep-seated childlike hope that the Omaha that I left 15 years prior had made progress. And I landed in 2017 and I thought, nope, the quilt of, of, status quo is still firmly laid over the top of the city. So when I moved back, I got involved with Habitat for Humanity, um, which is a full circle moment, having been a homeowner myself. Um, I I worked in that for two years and then um, I broke my leg and was, was not mobile. I was a wheelchair user for about five months, had to learn how to rewalk all of those things. And 
that also created an opportunity for me to lean into doing some homelessness work around, um, it was right when the CARES Act dollars all came down. So I helped build the rental assistance and eviction prevention program. And so all of those things started, I started to see this gap in a match of advocacy and policy and the way that our nonprofits were funded and a way that the general Omahaan was disconnected from all of that. And so I wanted to run to start drawing those lines together and connecting those dots. I also wanted to run because I knew that I could signal to the people that uh, were constituents of West Omaha, things like the Omaha library is an absolute necessary piece of our city services. It is where kiddos go to get Wi-Fi if they don't have it at home. It's the first place that people land when they're coming new to a place. Um, And sure enough, it was one of the first city services uh, that were cut from the budget when COVID hit. And so I just, I knew that I was going to be brave enough to have some of those conversations. What I did not expect was backlash about my identity, which I haven't talked publicly about a lot. So this is the first time to really broach it, but I received um, emails upon emails and voicemails and phone calls of people basically challenging who I thought I was to be running as a black biracial woman in West Omaha. And that was extremely challenging um, and hurtful. And at the same time, I gussied up my, my brave or my um, whatever you wanna call it and called every single one of them back and responded to every single one of those emails and challenged them and said, is this really how you would talk to a neighbor? Because I'm your neighbor. Like you're calling me because I'm running to represent you, which means we live very close to each other. And if you're willing to say that to me as someone who stepped out publicly to run for office, how are you treating the rest of our city? Um, I also ran because I knew that there needed to be conversations that were elevated about overall community care, not just one district represented by one person, but how can district six impact the harmony and the economy of district two and how can district five help, you know? So I wanted to be a part of that as well. Um, And the beautiful thing is that win or lose, those things were elevated. Um, And that's what is exciting for going forward. So people questioning um, your credibility and your own sense of identity is hurtful enough. Do you feel that you left the campaign, even though ultimately you weren't victorious in winning that particular seat, that you left with hope given the conversations that you had, as you would say, the signals that you um, flashed out there for people, the conversations that you sparked? I think so. And, and I can never remember who said this as a quote, but that hope is a practice. And so hope is something that we have to continually work at. It's not something that I felt I have because I ran the campaign. It's a running the campaign was the next piece and the next layer to add to my practice of hope. Um, my practice of hope also comes into play when I think about, uh, there were two other candidates, um, Sarah Johnson and Cami Watkins. And after we all three lost, we brought all of our volunteers together. So there was hundreds, hundreds of people over the three candidates um, that, that we were kind of bonded together. And we brought them together for a celebration after the election. And one of the things that we talked about was this was just one moment in your life that you said, I'll help or I'll volunteer. And if we stop, then it's such a shame to have used all of that energy for one election cycle. And so we've now started what's called the social impact ecosystem. The three of us candidates are not, um, we're helping to shape it, but we're not leading it. And what it has done is created a really beautiful way to practice hope to get up every morning and know that there's this group that is helping to build the undergirded network, whether it means we've got folks to testify at hearings or whether it means we've got folks to make casseroles to support the people that are frontline workers. Uh, We're building in who's the storytellers, who can make sure that this work isn't forgotten. And so that's exciting. It's also exciting to see that the act of politics is sometimes simply making yourself more known I decided to run because I I did truly feel that I had a lot of value to bring. And then realizing along the way, it doesn't matter if I was elected, I still have that value to bring. And so that's my next step. And I'll be stepping into really hardcore and very focused affordable housing and Indian homelessness work 
that I think in part was elevated because I ran for office. your views on what it means to build community and your approaches changed as a result of living in this community for a little bit longer, for having gone through that campaign. And also perhaps it's impossible to ignore the fact that we've endured and are still enduring a pandemic. So I'm curious how your perspectives on on community building have shifted. It's a really good question. So most of my experience in community building has been in online spaces or in places where you couldn't gather. And so you mentioned I am a triangle, which which I actually just took through a sunset process. So about nine years worth of an online space for 17,000 people around the world. Um, and then my real estate work has always been to match people um, in different locations. So that's also been very online centric. So to come back to Omaha, in 2017, it's been a challenge for myself to step outside of online community building and work on in-person community building. And then to have that ripped away with COVID then puts me right back into my sweet spot. So what I have found and what has been bolstered by running for city council is that we in Omaha have such an extraordinary amount of resources, whether it is philanthropic dollars or amazing nonprofits, really thriving art um, spaces and artists across all different mediums. Um, We have a beautiful landscape. If you look at, you know, Omaha's um, protection, even though we've had some trauma recently with flooding and, and such, but we do have a beautiful landscape on which to build. And so I just see Omaha as just so ripe for community building. And part of what I see as a hope is district jumping or, you know, getting West Omaha folks to go enjoy South Omaha, not because you're volunteering, not because you're loading up on a bus, bus to go save anybody, but just go enjoy, go enjoy people that, that live in different spaces than you do. Um, go to a different park, spin the wheel and pick a different restaurant. Um, some of that is how we start to also build community. And that's been a joy in Omaha. You wrote um, that your husband and yourself don't necessarily vote the same way. And so in, in the spirit of bridging that you've just been describing as a more external element of society, have your voting patterns begun to um, come together? And I would imagine that your husband was supportive of your campaign, but I don't know if he voted for you. So um, one of the things we, so when we got married, when I was growing up and when we got married, I was voting similar to him. So I'm the, I'm the one that shifted. Um, and I shifted primarily from living overseas and from just the more I, my set of experiences changed, the more I realized how, how I feel responsible socially to my neighbors, which I think is some of the draw, you know, the lines that you would draw between the two political parties. As far as my husband and I go, it's so interesting because if you look at the nucleus of our family, we would vote the same. If you look at the nucleus of our extended family, we would still vote the same. Even inside of a community where you're voting for the betterment of the people you don't know but might run into at the grocery store, we still vote the same. Where some of it shifts is when you start talking about values. And we vote differently on a federal level, I'll put it that way, based on the business values and the funding priorities that each party holds differently. 
And so that was something that really was interesting during my campaign because 94% of district six voters are white. And then I can't remember, 57% of district six voters are Republicans. And I was so easily able to have conversations with people who might never have given me the time of day because of my 18 year marriage to my husband, uh, because we have those conversations all the time. And at the core of any political conversation that I've ever had, campaign trail, off campaign trail has been, but what do you care about at the end of the day? And if we can start there, then I'm sure that we can find something that we have in common. If we start big and if we start federal and if we start, you know, that that's too big for any of us because really what matters to us is that nucleus. I don't think that I'm being that selfish right now. You said yourself you'd be breaking every vow. I can understand you're tired of this town. And I'm not saying that we have to settle down now. Just remember this. We could have been stardust. Same world, but without us. Something made us, made us find each other out there. Made us realize we're more than just stardust. Ignore this fact if you must To do what your dreams are telling you to do And I'll be out there looking for someone like you Stardust, Stardust So, housing. You have this new venture that is amplifying your passion in that regard and affordable housing, accessibility to housing, equity in housing and you know appropriate fair practices. I want to ask you to explain a little bit about what is that venture, but also perhaps to set the stage a little bit, what is the state of affordable housing, accessible housing in our area and what's happening as regards the precariousness or the security and stability of that housing? So I've long been... Um kind of a nerd and a geek about social determinants of health. And it's this you know, spectrum of all of the things that one might come into interaction with in your day and how does that impact your overall health? So it's things like your neighborhood and transportation, your access to medical care, and it can even be built environment and your neighborhood. I, you know, so I, I break my leg and I all of a sudden have this radically shifted Um, experience with Omaha, because I can't get into places, I can't navigate myself, I can't drive myself to an appointment, Um, I can't go to my favorite restaurant, because the hostess stand doesn't allow for my wheelchair. All of these things start to shift my perspective. And so then I started thinking, well, I now can't go up to my bedroom. How many houses in Omaha are not built for someone who's, you know, um, responding to or living with a disability? So, so there's that aspect, aspect of accessibility. There's also the accessibility um, standpoint from a language access. If, if an entire government is built to respond to you if you speak the language and we have programming and we have housing options and all these beautiful things, but you can only access them if you speak the right language, that becomes an accessibility issue. Um, there was a, a study that was done earlier this year Uh, that was funded by, I think, nine different foundations. And it came out with this like greater Omaha's affordable housing landscape. And what it shows is that in the next three to four years, if we don't do something radically different, we're going to be 80,000 units short in the greater Omaha area, including Council Bluffs, where we are expecting households to pay way too much for their housing. And then that becomes a stability issue. The other thing I would say that has really lodged in my brain, uh, and it was from that first year of COVID response, we launched a pilot with one of the local foundations to see what would happen if we just did everything in our power to keep kids in the same house they were at at the beginning of the school year so they didn't have mobility issues. Because every time a child has to move, they lose three months of learned um, progress. I just started becoming so radically and radical just means grasping things at the root. You know, it's, it's not anything to be scared of. Um, but I became radically obsessed with 
what's the bottom, what's the, what's the most that we can do? Not what's the least and what's the easy hanging, low hanging fruit, but what's at the bottom of all of this, of our brain drain, when we have people leaving Nebraska, when we have um, boards that still are making decisions that look the same way they did 20 years ago, um, all of these pieces start coming down to me to a lack of safe and stable housing. I will always champion the work of Habitat for Humanity. And we have to also make sure that we take care of the renting ecosystem. And when we take care of the renting ecosystem, we also have to take care of the DIY, the mom and pop landlords. Like there's just so much into all of this. I also feel strongly, and this is going to be a bold statement, but we've been managing homelessness in Omaha for the last two decades, and we need to work to ending it. Managing it means all of the nonprofits that have been built to eradicate it still have jobs. And so what if we looked at it differently and we started saying, well, what's the new thing that we can imagine that these nonprofits could shift to once we end homelessness? So that's part of the new venture as well, will be to get to a functional zero uh, for homelessness in Omaha. So this new venture, how is it going to do that, uh, that bold aspiration of zero homelessness? Yeah, well, and some of it, some of it means going back to that signaling, listening to what else is happening in the community. So, you know, we have a HUD, which is the Housing and Urban Development Federal Branch of, of Housing, that determines what homelessness is and what you have to have to be considered homeless. Well, we've learned over this last year and a half that there's people right under the iceberg of homelessness, what you can see above the water. We have thousands of families and individuals that would qualify or identify as homeless, but not to be matched with any funding source. So part of what the new initiative will do is help to stack, gather and leverage resources uh, private dollars, our governmental um, funding sources, and other national um, consortiums of dollars to just match it all up and draw those dots together. Uh, a great example is our kiddos that age out of the foster care system. A lot of those um, end up being young parents. There's a huge amount of LGBTQ youth that end up homeless, but not by HUD standards because they're couch surfing. So just the more that we all know about these things help us come to the table to solve them. But the big, the big answer to how we'll solve it is matching the dollars, making sure that we're leveraging funds, knowing who to go to at the county and the city to say, hey, here's a project, here's how you can get behind it. Um, and then this, this is rather nuanced, but making sure that there's language access in all of this, making sure that our top six languages that are spoken in Omaha are being acknowledged and that we have information going out in those languages. And then the other side of it too is where I'm excited to be looking at ways that we can address affordable housing with the end in mind so that we have accessible spaces that you can grow old in, you can become disabled or have your life shift and you can stay in. So there's some really fun, cool stuff happening. The other thing that we're really looking at too is not only aging in place and making sure that we are designing with an accessible mind when we look at affordable housing, but also who are we not thinking of? And things like our criminal justice system, we have folks that are re-entering society that have all these beautiful programming and bettering you know, business plans and all these things that have happened. And then we don't have housing. And so the, the re-entry back into the criminal justice system is just, it's an open door. And so how can we put kind of a pin in what we know is a cyclical issue. Um, and so we're excited to be able to develop some housing that's also meeting the needs for folks to re-enter, which comes back to community and belonging as well. So back to community and belonging, everybody listening to this conversation themselves is part of a community. And you've been talking about your work around community building and some of your own experiences and, and life that you know brings to life your passion. So what is your ask of us, all of us, we're listening. What is your ask of us? I think my ask would be to spend some time looking at your own childhood and your own set of experiences and draw kind of that red thread connection to what are the things that have always been present and true for yourself. For me, it's always been the stability of community. And then you can start to then draw through lines to what that might mean for you in terms of sharing your resources and your skills. Um, Deepa Iyer 
is the um, creator of the ecosystem concept. There's 10 roles. And the beauty of the 10 roles is that we don't all have to do everything. So if you're a natural caretaker, if your first inclination is to make a casserole for someone who's just had a baby, you're probably a caretaker. If your first reaction to um, there being an injustice done is to go make a sign to protest, you're a frontline responder. If you want, if you get out the pen and you're taking notes and you want to make sure that people remember this moment, you're a storyteller. And so we all don't need to be all of those roles, but we all need to be in something. And so my ask is that people would just look at your life, figure out what might be your natural role, and then find a way to slot in. I know it's overwhelming right now. Focus on one thing. We don't have to be, we get so overwhelmed when we're asked to take care of the whole world and we're not. Um, so maybe identify just the one or two things. I, I was quoted recently by saying, find the one or two things that you care about and holler about it just a little bit. My guest today has been Naomi Hathaway, nonprofit consultant and community builder. Naomi, thank you so much for sharing your time with us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah, we can talk about it now. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.